0: Well, good morning. It is very good to be with you this morning. Um, I want to start by just saying thanks to, to John and Lorna. Um, we've been, Since they moved up here, we've been trying to find a way to get up here. And so it was a double blessing to get to be with you this morning and preach, and then also get to stay with them and do some hiking yesterday um, as well. They have become, they were friends of, friends of ours before they moved up here, but they've become especially dear friends uh, after this weekend, hosting all six of our children. So the friendship is as solidified as it can be, I think. We'll see if we get invited back, though. Um, no, it really, really is a privilege to be here. Uh, John was in one of my first classes, actually the first class I ever taught at the seminary. Uh, it was a Greek class, and um, I think it was his last class as well. Is that right? So I don't, I don't know entirely what to make of that. Um, but it's, a, it's really a, a privilege and, and, and a treat to be with you this morning. As John said, I do teach New Testament at the seminary. And you should probably know that what I'm going to talk to you about this morning is my expertise. It's what I did my my dissertation, my Ph.D. dissertation on, okay? So if I get a little bit excited at certain points, okay, if I I look pretty enthusiastic, that's why. This is kind of my bread and butter. But it's really a treat to get to help you think through the issue of how Mark's gospel ends. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Let me uh, mention a couple things before I get started, and that is uh, two things. One is... Um, I bring you greetings not only from the seminary, but also from Whitten Avenue Bible Church, where I attend with my family down in in the valley. Uh, We pray for you often in our pastoral prayer, and so it's a real treat for me to get to finally meet many of you face to face. Um, Let me mention that what we're going to talk about this morning is probably going to raise some questions for some of you, okay? I'm going to try to do my best to answer as many as I can, okay? But inevitably, when I talk about this, it raises some questions I don't have time to answer, and so I want to make let you know that I'll be around afterwards feel free to come talk to me okay I'm happy to answer questions that I didn't get a chance to answer for you in the talk but also let me mention the text and Canon Institute that I help run at the seminary our whole goal there at the Institute is to illuminate the history of the Bible and we do that through through scholarship but also by providing resources for churches to help Christians understand and appreciate the incredible history of this book that you have, many of you, leather-bound. It was actually really great to come in here today and hear so many Bibles turning, right? So many of us use them on our phones, but I love hearing those pages turn. So um, just to let you know, there's a table in the back that has a lot more information about the Text and Canon Institute. If you're curious and want to learn more, we have um, an email newsletter. You can uh, sign up for that if you want to keep in touch. But we've got uh, quite a bit to cover this morning, and essentially what I want to do with you is a few things. First, we're going to consider this ending to Mark that's in your Bibles, in your English Bible, starting at verse 9 and running through verse 20. So I'm gonna read it here in a minute for us so we're all on the same page. But I want us to think together this morning about why these verses are in your Bible. Okay, first of all. Then I want us to think together about why they're in your Bible with a note. All right, unless you're reading from the King James or the New King James this morning, your Bible almost certainly has a little note before this passage starts, and it certainly, if it doesn't have that, does have a footnote. Okay? So we're going to talk about why that note is there. Um, and then I'll briefly mention as well why this note isn't found in older English Bibles, like the King James. Okay? And then what we're going to end this morning is thinking together about some of the theological points that are in this passage, okay? And I'm gonna explain why we do that as we get there. But just so you know, that's where we're headed this morning. We're gonna talk about why this passage is in your Bible, why it's there with a note, and then we are gonna spend some time thinking together about what it says, okay? So the first thing I need to do with you this morning is talk to you just a little bit about what scholars do and how they produce your English Bible, okay? As some of you know, the Bible's not written in English. It was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament with a little bit of Aramaic and the New Testament was written completely in Greek. And as you know, the printing press was not invented until around the year 1450. And that means that until that time, people who wanted a copy of the Scriptures, if they wanted a copy, they had to copy it by hand, okay? And what that means is that we have thousands and thousands of hand copies of the Greek New Testament. And that means because they were hand copied, that they sometimes have differences between them. So indeed, if you want to go to the first slide up here, we'll see if this, let's see if this works, yes. Um, you will occasionally find notes like this in your English Bible, notes that say things like, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include. That's what the note in my ESV says before this passage. Sometimes you'll see it in the footnotes instead. If you were to look up um, the prayer of Jesus from the cross, for example, Father forgive them for they know not what they do, a very famous passage, you would see a footnote in your ESV at that point, that's in Luke chapter 23. And what can happen sometimes is that people who are aware of this history of the Bible, that was copied by hand, and that there are differences between the copies that we have, it's not uncommon for people who are, let's say, not friendly to the Christian faith, or don't treasure the Bible as the Word of God, oftentimes use this as a way to undercut the authority of the Bible. So, Dee Dee, if you want to go to the next slide, I have a quote here from someone who takes this view. This is from Kristen Swenson, who's an Old Testament professor. I can't remember uh, where exactly she teaches, but she's an Old Testament professor. And here's how she concludes the first chapter of her recent book on the Bible. She says, Considering that we don't have one original and indisputable Bible, but rather a collection that evolved over a long period of time, for which our evidence is copies of copies, not all of which agree with one another, how can a person believe in it, much less live by it? All right? this is the kind of view of the bible that in my opinion in my experience is becoming more and more common that people use the information that we're going to talk about today okay the differences in our manuscripts and how scholars go about resolving them to undercut or discredit the authority of the bible are you with me so it's really important that we as christians understand at least the basics of how this process works okay and so that when you come across a passage like this in your bible it says some manuscripts say it doesn't lead you to this conclusion. I'm going to do my best this morning in the time we have to help us think through that, okay? So if we go to the next side, Didi, the first thing I want to tell you is we have a lot of copies of the New Testament, alright? A lot. Uh, we actually don't know exactly how many we have because they're hard to count. And they're hard to count because they're spread over libraries and monasteries and museums, all mostly in Europe, although there's some in the United States as well. And they tend to, sometimes they get moved around, And can you believe this? Librarians actually lose books. Did you know this? (laughs) (laughs) It's not just my kids. It makes me feel a little bit better. But sometimes they actually misplace books, so they don't know where they are. I've been at libraries where I've discovered new New Testament manuscripts sometimes that the librarians themselves did not know about. Right? So they have lots, and sometimes they're hard to keep track of. But this graph here gives you some sense of how many we have. And what I want you to notice, especially from this graph, is how you get this big peak up here. You can't see it because the numbers are too small, but that's between the 11th and 14th century. All right? So it's really important to keep in mind that when we talk as Christians about how many copies of the New Testament we have, we keep it in perspective. We don't mean that every copy is early. Okay? Lots of copies are late from the 11th to 14th century. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing but it's just something we need to keep in mind. We're going to have to think about that a little bit today as we think about some of the manuscripts that have to do with our passage here in Mark 16. So if we go to the next slide then, this is just another way to look at the same data, but to give you a sense that not every copy that we have of the New Testament is a complete New Testament, all right? Now this is something that's worth thinking about. Even as someone who has a modern English Bible and you have a complete Bible, right? It's a very small thing for a Christian today to have a complete Bible. That is a modern phenomenon, right? We don't think about it much, but, I, you know, I can go to Walmart, probably pay five bucks and get a cheap paperback, but I've got the whole Bible. But for most Christians, for most of history, that has been out of the question. Why? Because in the past, before the invention of the printing press, books were very expensive. I'll tell you one little story that really brought this home to me. A number of years ago, I was in Italy, photographing Greek New Testament manuscripts in the Medici Library, um, part of which was designed by Michelangelo's beautiful library. And um, Michelangelo had designed the steps leading up into the reading room. And this reading room was actually one of the first, what we might call kind of an early public library, right? We take public libraries for granted today, but they haven't always been a thing. And so I was in this library, and the library was set up with reading tables where you could put the book to read, and at the back of the room was the bookshelves where they would keep the books. And we were there to digitize some of these manuscripts, and one of the manuscripts that we digitized still had, attached to the spine, the chain. And I thought, well, that's odd. Why would there be a chain on a Bible? But when they took us up into this reading room, it became clear because underneath the reading desk, there was a metal bar that ran right along underneath the table. And that bar was there because they would bring the book to you. You would request it from the librarian. The librarian would bring the book to you, they would put it on the table, and then they would chain it to the bar so that you could not steal it, which I think that's, you know, that's an interesting approach to late fees. (laughs) But, But it gives you an impression of just how important, how expensive Bibles could be. One of the manuscripts I'm going to show you this morning, it's actually on display at the table if you want to go back and look at it after the service is a fourth-century copy that is of the complete Bible. It's very rare in that that it's a complete copy of the whole Bible. And um, scholars have estimated that it might have cost a priest or a pastor at the time his whole year's salary for a book like that, right? Now, can you imagine if if we said, look, we only have enough money in the church for one Bible, so we're going to take all of John's salary and we'll pay for it, right? See how that would go over. But that's how precious books were. And so, keep in mind that most copies of our New Testament are not complete copies. Now, what's interesting about this graphic here is you can see that when Christians had to choose which part of the Bible to copy, and they often did, what did they choose to copy? They copied the Gospels. If they had to choose, again, it's not a choice you and I ever have to think about, but they did. And when they did have to choose, they often chose the Gospels. So, we have in the range of over 2,000 copies of our Gospels. We'll come back to that when we think about our passage. All right, um, next slide, if you would. Let me give you some perspective, okay? Copying by hand is really hard. Okay. As I always say, if you don't believe me, go home today, pull out Mark's Gospel and copy by hand, and see how you do, (laughs) right? It's hard work. And so what happens is because we have so many copies of our New Testament, we also have lots of small differences between them, where scribes made mistakes. But it's really important when we think about all these mistakes, and there are a lot of them, it's really important that we keep them in perspective. So, in one case of the New Testament, John chapter 18, it's one of the few places in the New Testament where scholars have been able to compare all the manuscripts to each other and list out all the differences between them. It's kind of surprising to people when I tell them this. Most people think, surely that's already been done, but the answer is no. Because it's just really tedious work. It takes a long time to do. And we have so many manuscripts that nobody's done it all the way through the whole New Testament. But in John chapter 18, people have. And I took a few months during my PhD to do the very exciting work of counting all of those differences. (laughs) And here's what I discovered I counted that there were about 1,600 differences in our manuscripts of John chapter 18. Now you can see, sorry, not 1,600, 3,000. You can see we have about 1,600 copies of John chapter 18 and I counted a total of 3,000 variants. Now that's pretty striking when you compare that to the number of words in John 18. There's only 800 words in John 18. Now you can imagine with just those two facts, you can imagine how those who are skeptical about the Bible, or who do not treasure it as the Word of God the way we do, would love to use those two pieces of information to discredit it. Are you with me on this? But it's really important when we think about statistics to think carefully about how they work. So when I went through all these variants and counted them, I noticed, for example, in counting them, that a full 40% of those 3,000 variants are what we call, as scholars, we call them nonsense readings, which are readings that are, Nonsense. <laughs> this is not easy. Sometimes we scholars make up technical terms that are really confusing. That one's not one. This is like when I write an email, right? And I mean to type the word the, but I spell it T E H. Yes. If you got an email from me and you saw that word, you would immediately know that's not a real word. But you'd also know exactly what English word I meant to type, wouldn't you? Okay. A full forty percent of the variants in John 18 are nonsense. We can in most cases tell exactly what the scribe meant to, to write. He just messed it up. He just got confused. Okay. A full 60 percent of them, and many of these overlap, are readings that are found only in a single manuscript. Meaning okay. they have very little likelihood of being original. We know immediately they're probably a scribal mistake and we can ignore them. Okay. The other thing we could think about is scribes only made mistakes in copying the New Testament in copying the New Testament. (laughs) Are you with me? In other words, sometimes people like to compare, well, we have 3,000 variants to only 800 words in John 18. Well, yes, that's true statistically, but it's not a very meaningful comparison. A better comparison would be to say, how many variants do we have relative to the number of words that they copied in all 1,600 plus of those manuscripts? And if you run the numbers that way, You find that scribes copy John 18, if they copied it 1,600 times and there's 800 words, that means they had to copy about 1.3 million words by hand. By hand! That's really impressive, and that then comes out to really only one variant for every 434 words they had to copy. Does that make sense? It gives you a totally different picture. Initially you think, wow, 3,000 variants for only 800 words. Well, right, but They have to copy all 800 words of those every time they make a new copy. So it ends up with one variant for every 400 or so words. The last thing to note is really the most important one, okay? Because if all you know is the statistic, it still seems very shocking, doesn't it? But the reality is for people like me who work in this field of study, well, I'll say two things. One is, we love data. So the more variants in some ways, the better for us because it gives us material to study, right? As my my supervisors always say, we're scribes at everything perfect, there's not much for us to study. (laughs) It's only when they made mistakes that we as scholars have things to study and to learn from them about how they copied and the types of mistakes they made, and that's actually really valuable information for us. But if we were to ask how many of these 3,000 plus variants really either affect translation or affect the interpretation or are, let's say, Variants where we're just not sure what the original is. Are you with me on this? That's what really matters to us as Christians, right? How many of these variants actually affect the meaning of the text? And the answer in John 18, or at least one way to get it, the answer is to look at the footnotes of your English Bible. Because English Bible translators tend to tell you those variants that are most significant, that affect the meaning, and that are difficult to resolve, difficult to decide. Are you with me? And in John 18, if you check the ESV, I checked the NIV, the NRSV, and the Net Bible, which, if you've ever heard of the Net Bible, has thousands and thousands of footnotes. Zero. Okay. zero, zero variants are noted in those footnotes. Does that make sense? So out of starting with 3,000 variants, if I were to, if I were to, to answer the question, what, how many of them really matter, how many of them are difficult to resolve, where we, we don't know what the original is, the answer is zero. Are you with me? really important to keep that in mind as we get started this morning. So the, the last thing I want to say before we look at our text this morning in, in Mark 18, if we go to the next slide, Didi, is why do we need to do textual criticism? We've already assumed that we need to, but why do we need to do this discipline of looking at the manuscripts and trying to resolve their differences? The first reason is because the originals are lost. This is not surprising. They were written on papyrus or maybe parchment, and both of those materials wear out after time. So it's not surprising that the original copy of Mark's gospel is lost. Secondly, as I already mentioned, copying by hand is hard, (laughs) right? And again, if you don't believe me, just try it. The third reason why we need to do this process of textual criticism is because the surviving copies we have don't all agree, right? So we have to know how to resolve their differences so we know which text is God's Word and which text is simply a scribal mistake. The last thing is one we consider as Christians, okay? Everything I said so far, a non-Christian scholar would totally agree with. But this last one is something we can say as Christians, and that is, as Christians, we do not believe that God inspired scribes. Are you with me on this? We believe that God inspired the original authors, and that's why we believe their words are the ones that come with God's full authority. But where a scribe has been copying, and like me, he writes T-E-H instead of (laughs) T-H-E, right? We do not believe that God has inspired that. Does that make sense? And that is the last reason, maybe the most important reason, why we have to do textual criticism. All right, let me give you one quick example, D, if we go to the next slide. One quick example of how this works, okay? This is the first verse of Mark's gospel, okay? So we're going to look at the ending of Mark today, but here's the first verse. And here's a fourth-century manuscript called Codex Sinaiticus. It's the one on display at the table in the back. And it's really, I know it's hard to see, because it's super tiny, but right up here in this circle, you can see some little letters up here, written between the main lines, do you see that? That's a place where the scribe, in my opinion, has accidentally left out these words, and they're the words, son of God, Mark 1:1. in the beginning, uh, sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then these two words here, written tiny, are son of God, Okay? Now, the reason he probably left them out is because the last letters, it looks like a little Y to us. That's the Greek letter oopsalon, okay? But the word right before it also has that same letter that looks like a Y. And the word before it ends with the same letter that looks like a Y. And right before that, you have a letter that looks like a Y. Do you see that? And maybe you've done this. And if you haven't, again, try it today. If you're copying something out by hand, when you get two words that have the same ending as the words that come before it, and think about a scribe, you're going from this manuscript to copying over here. Then you gotta go back over here to your main manuscript and you're copying it over here. What's gonna happen to your eyes from time to time? Your eyes are gonna skip words by accident, right? And that's exactly what's happened here. Thankfully, this scribe seems to have caught himself. Dede, if you wanna go to the next slide, I'll show you another example of this. Here's, this is a a medieval manuscript from the 14th century. I actually got to see this manuscript in Italy one time. It's one of those unique manuscripts that is a complete New Testament. Only about 60 of these in the whole world. I was in a, It's in a public library in Italy. I don't speak any Italian. Okay? So I'm not sure if they said yes you can take pictures of this or no you can't. <laughs> okay? Uh, so if we could just not let it out of this room that I have these pictures, <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. But you can see actually the same point of Mark 1-1. This scribe who's actually writing in a different handwriting style has made the exact same mistake. You can see here, I know it's hard to see, it's a little bit blurry, but there's the letter oops on. Now it looks like our English U. And over here, he's made this little mark here to note that he's made a mistake. And over here, he's put that same mark. And then over here, he's added it in. If you go to the next slide, you can see further down the page, he's actually made the exact same mistake in a different verse. But same mistake with the same letter, the letter upsilon. Here's the last word he wrote with an upsilon. And then over here, he's had to add in almost half the verse. Because he just accidentally left it out. Same reason. Now, I always like to say with this manuscript, this scribe, Kind of a lousy scribe. (laughs) Because, actually, I went through the whole manuscript when I was there in Italy, and page after page after page had these, these kind of corrections in the margin. Almost every page had a correction in the margin like this. Lousy scribe. Not a bad corrector, though. Yeah? Okay? So keep that in mind. All right? It's important to remember that scribes, sometimes you'll hear it described that scribes and copying because they make mistakes well the text just gets worse and worse and worse over time it's a bit like the telephone game maybe you've heard this right you know the problem there's two there's two problems with that analogy one i don't know if you remember but the telephone game the whole point is to have fun and the telephone not phone is only fun if the message gets garbled (laughs) along the way right but more importantly the real difference between the telephone game and the way scribes copied our bible is that along the way yes there were opportunities for mistakes like we see here from this poor guy but there were also opportunities at every stage to make corrections. And that's not the case in the telephone game, right? You don't stop the telephone game, go back to the original source and say, hey, what did you say? Oh, okay, and now we get back on track. Are you with me? So really, the copying is not very much like the telephone game at all. All right. This brings us then to thinking about Mark 16. Okay? And as you learned last week in your sermon, most scholars think that Mark actually ends his gospel at verse 8 surprisingly with the women leaving the tomb in fear and not saying anything to anyone but all English Bibles, as far as I know I've never seen an exception all English Bibles have verses 9 through 20 and so I want to think to you now with that basic background of how textual criticism works and why we need to do it about this particular variation okay and how we should think about it okay as I said your English Bible is translated from Greek And most manuscripts in Greek have this longer ending, okay? So the first answer to the question, why is this in your Bible, is the simple one, because it's in most Greek manuscripts, okay? In particular, it's in about 1600 Greek manuscripts. There are only two, which we'll talk about in a minute. There are only two that do not have it. There's a third one that's a little bit dicey, it's a little bit debated, so we'll stick with the two main ones, Okay? It's not in most, excuse me, it's in most Greek Bibles, okay, and that's the reason why it's in your English Bible. Now, we should mention, if you remember back to my graph where I showed you where manuscripts date, and you saw that big peak over in the 11th to 14th century, okay, only about nine of our copies of Mark's Gospel date from before the ninth century, okay. So, when we say 1600 Greek manuscripts have this longer ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, keep in mind that most of them date from after the ninth century, Okay hundreds of years after mark was written all right we'll come back to that in a minute well, i should also make sure to point out that this longer ending has been part of the english bible from the very beginning it's not surprising given what i just told you about the manuscripts but john Wycliffe's translation which you may have you're probably familiar with a little bit um, probably finished around the year thirteen eighty two um, has it and then also the english bible of william tyndale finished in fifteen twenty six which is the first English Bible from the Greek text rather than from the Latin, it also has it too, so by the time we get to the King James in 1611, all English Bibles had had it by that point, alright? And the very simple reason for that is, at that point in history, they didn't know about a lot of Greek manuscripts of the Bible, right? So the King James translation is really made from somewhere around a dozen New Testament manuscripts, that's really what it's based on, and most of them are from after the 9th the two most important manuscripts that we'll look at here in a minute that don't have this longer ending were not available at the time. One of them hadn't even been discovered yet. All right. So as I say, why is it in your English Bible? The simple reason is because it's in most Greek manuscripts and because it's in, it's been in most English Bibles. Okay? It was only in 1881 that the first English Bible came out, there was a revision of the King James that first noted the problem for English Bible readers. It's not that no English readers had known about it before, but that was the first time it was right there in the English Bible, that there was an issue here, okay? So, that's why it's in your English Bible, let's look now for a second at why it's marked in your Bible, okay? And in particular, why most scholars do not think it's originally part of Mark's Gospel. The most important reason is because there are two manuscripts that do not have it. Now, you may think, well, come on, if we're doing math here, (coughs) 1,600 to (laughs) 2, those are pretty good odds, right? If it's in 1,600 manuscripts, my goodness, why is there any doubt about it? Well, the two manuscripts that do not have it are not just any two manuscripts. So, indeed, if we can go to the next slide, this is a picture of Codex Sinaiticus here on the right, again, same manuscript that's on display in the back. Over here on the left is a copy of the earliest manuscript of Mars' Gospel, actually just discovered and published within the last few years. One of the really exciting things about working in this field is that we discover new manuscripts all the time and they get published. This one was sitting in a library in Oxford for over a hundred years. And somebody knew it was there but it got forgotten and didn't get published until recently pretty amazing. But to give you a sense of the difference in size, this is second or third century here on the left, this is fourth century here on the right, okay, that little tiny orange square there, that's how big the manuscript on the, on the left really is, <laughs> okay. It's tiny. It's the size of a credit card, okay. Whereas the one on the right, that's a, it's Old and New Testament actually. It's a really big manuscript. Go look at it before you leave, it's huge, okay. But it's really important and it wasn't discovered until the 19th century. Pretty amazing. It was hiding from us at St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai in Egypt. And it was discovered and then published, and then scholars finally started to study it, and they realized just how important a manuscript it was. Because it's very early and overall has a very good text. So if you go to the next slide, Didi, that's a little close up of the ending of Mark in Codex Sinaiticus. And you'll see where I've driven, drawn that orange box. That's an, a blank space, and above it, is Mark 16 verse 8 and there's nothing that comes after it. Okay? So you can see this is our earliest copy of Mark chapter 16 and there's no longer ending. And then if you go to the next slide, Didi, this is now Codex Vaticanus. Name that because it's kept in the Vatican Library. And the same thing there where we end Mark's Gospel at verse 16-8 without even a note. That little part there at the bottom is just the title of Mark again and then nothing after that. So no longer ending of mark. The other thing is there are about a dozen medieval manuscripts. Didi, if you go to the next slide, you'll see one of the medieval manuscripts that has a note, very much like your English Bible does today. And the note says the text from this point until the end is not found in some copies. But in the ancient manuscripts everything is found complete. Now, we know today, we know more than this medieval scribe did, because we now know it's actually the opposite, isn't it? It's actually the, the older manuscripts that do not have this longer ending. But I point this out to let you know that even in the Middle Ages, some people still knew there was an issue here. And they put a note in their their copy of Mark. So we have about 12 manuscripts that have a note like this. One other manuscript that has a note says, in some of the copies of, of Mark, this longer ending isn't found, but it stops here. No note even about better manuscripts or whatnot. Okay? This means, again, that there were medieval scribes who knew about the problem and thought it was important to alert readers. So that's the Greek evidence, the the evidence of of the Greek manuscripts, as our two oldest copies, our two most important copies do not have it. Certain medieval manuscripts also tell us that it's not found there. The next type of evidence we need to consider is translations. One of the remarkable things about Christianity is that very early on, Christians thought it was important to translate the Bible into other languages, right? And we've been doing it ever since. So it was very early on translated into languages, as you know, like Latin but also maybe some languages you've never heard of, like Coptic, which is an Egyptian language, Syriac, or Old Church Slavonic. Any Old Church Slavonic speakers here today? No, probably, okay, I figured probably not. It's pretty rare, okay? But Christians wanted people to have the Bible in their own language. So, Didi, if we go to the next slide, here's a copy of the earliest Latin texts of the Gospels, known as Codex Bobiensis, from the fourth or fifth century. And what's interesting here is it does not have the longer ending, But it also doesn't have the shorter ending. It also doesn't end at verse 8 either. It has what's sometimes called the shorter ending, okay, or I like to call it the intermediate ending. And you can actually see the English of this in your ESV. If you look at the footnote carefully in your ESV, you'll see it has this ending. All right? Now, what's really important about this manuscript, and there are other manuscripts that have this, what I would call the intermediate ending, what's really important is that it shows us that some scribes, we're like you. <laughs> what do I mean by that? How many of you last week thought, this is a weird place to end the gospel, right? Fear, silence, right? Like, reading it, you know they could have stayed silent forever, because if they had, we wouldn't be here, <laughs> right? They had to have told somebody at some point, so why end the gospel there? And, and Andrew did a very good job explaining to you how to read that, how to think about that that strange ending. But we are not the only people who thought it strange. Clearly, here's a scribe or maybe he got it from somebody else who thought, "Yeah, that's not the right way to end the gospel." So he adds this little summary statement, "But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him that they had been told and after this Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation." Much better conclusion. That's what we expect, right? That's really important because it tells us that some people felt uncomfortable with the gospel ending at Mark 16, 8. Okay? <clears throat> so, besides this manuscript, Codex Bobiensis, the longer ending is also missing in a very early Syriac gospel manuscript. There's a note in it in some later Syriac um, manuscripts. It's missing in a few Coptic ones as well, so just keep that in mind, okay? There are some versional evidence as well. The last piece of evidence I wanna look at with you, and then we'll, we'll move on to looking at some of the other factors involved is what we call patristic evidence, or that is evidence from the church fathers, okay? The church fathers, the earliest Christian theologians, wrote about the Bible a lot, and when they did, they often quoted from it. Now sometimes they did what your pastor does, they forgot, and they gave what they remembered the text to say, right? You ever done this? There's that verse somewhere that says something about something, <laughs> have you ever done this? Right? They did this sometimes too, okay, it's no slight on them. But other times, they seem to have quoted directly from from their copies. And many early Christian theologians do quote from this longer ending of Mark 16 without making any mention of any problem about it. So they seem to have just thought it was the the normal ending, and they took it as the proper ending. But there's um, one early Christian reader in particular, or Christian theologian, named Irenaeus. Irenaeus is from the 4th century. He was a very famous church historian. You may have heard of him. He was also a bishop at one point. But he's really the first person to record the history of the church after acts at least and in his discussion with someone who had written to him with questions about problems in the gospels apparent problems in the gospels um, sorry not Irenaeus, eusebius excuse me eusebius replies by saying well one way to resolve this problem is to note the fact that in, and this, these are his words in nearly all the copies Copies he elsewhere calls accurate, he says, all, in all the copies, Mark ends at verse 16, 8. Okay? So again, in the fourth century, Eusebius is well aware that in some copies, or in his opinion, nearly all the copies end at Mark 16, 8. Okay? Uh, that gets repeated in Jerome later in the fourth century as well. So those are just a couple of instances of church fathers. When we turn to consider the longer ending itself, we also notice some odd features that also suggests that Mark originally ended at Mark 16, verse 8. The first is the awkward transition to verse 9. Did you notice it when you read it? Look at it with me now. Verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Now, here's the odd thing. Mary is mentioned in the verse right before, isn't she? She's one of the women who went out and fled from the tomb. Why are we getting reintroduced to Mary Magdalene and we're getting an introduction almost as if we've never even met her before? She's the one from whom Jesus cast out seven demons. It's an odd transition. We wouldn't expect Mark to reintroduce Mary Magdalene right after she's just been in the previous verse. Do you see? The other thing that's odd is the other women who are with her, they seem to drop out completely in verse 9. We don't hear anything about them in verse 9. So that's a little bit awkward, isn't it? We also don't have some of Mark's characteristic vocabulary. There's some vocabulary in this passage that are also not like Mark's typical vocabulary. Some of that's subjective, but nevertheless I think combined with the manuscript evidence it's significant to notice. The other thing that I think is most striking is there are two things that the earlier parts of Mark's Gospel have really set us up to expect, and I think Andrew touched on both of these last week. One is twice in Mark's Gospel. Mark tells us to anticipate a meeting between Jesus and his disciples in Galilee after the resurrection. Do you remember this? If Mark wrote this ending, if he wrote verses 9 through 20, there's no mention of Galilee and a meeting. And then the other thing that's really striking that's not there is the thing that Mark has just set us up to in verse 7 of Mark 16 go tell the disciples and who. And you remember this last week from Andrew's sermon as well. We don't get any kind of reconciliation between Jesus and Peter, which is exactly what we should expect from Mark's own account so far. Does this make sense? So there are a number of indications, both, there's, there's some problems in the manuscripts. Our two earliest and important manuscripts do not have this longer ending. And then internally as well, there's some, some strange issues. We have this awkward transition from verse 8 to 9, and then there are certain things we would really expect that if Mark had written these, we would have, and we do not have them. Okay. The other thing we can mention, D.D., you can go to the next slide here, is that these three short little paragraphs we have in verses 9 through 20 all have some, some clear parallels to other places in the Gospels that, and, and Acts as well that tell us about Jesus' post-resurrection appearances. Okay. So, for example, Mark 16, verses 9 through, tw- uh, 9 through 11 has parallels to both Luke and John, and you can uh, look these up later if you want and see how some of these overlap. Perhaps the most striking one is verses 12 and 13. After these things He appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. What is that? That's the road to Emmaus, isn't it? And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. That's the road to Emmaus. That's a very, 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 very short summary of it, isn't it? <laughs> but almost certainly, that's a summary of Jesus' walk on the road to emmaus and the two disciples he appears to there other things we get of course are the ascension here which has parallels in luke and acts and we get the great commission which has a parallel in matthew okay so those are just some things to think about when you when we answer the question why is this in your english bible okay but why is it there with a note okay so that's the short reason it's marked in your bible because at the end of the day and this is the most important principle at the end of the day it's much much easier to explain why someone would want to add this ending to mark than why someone would want to take it out does that make sense if you had a copy of mark's gospel and it ended with verses 9 through 20 you would you might see some of the problems i just mentioned but it wouldn't be enough for you to say well let's cut that out right as a general rule scribes did not go cutting things out of the bible and that's a good thing (laughs) we could be very thankful for that right but occasionally, very occasionally, not very often, but occasionally when they came across something that was really odd like this, they seemed to have felt the need to supplement it. Does this make sense? So here's my best take on how you should think about verses 9 through 20. I like to think of them as an ancient appendix. They're an ancient appendix. That is, someone was reading Mark's gospel, they came to verse 8 and they thought that's an odd place to stop the gospel. I've read the story in Matthew's version, I've met this, read the story in Luke's version and in John's version, and I know there's more to it. Here, let me take some of these other things I know that are true from elsewhere in Scripture, and I'll summarize what happened after the fact. Whether that original person meant to add to Scripture in a bad way, or whether they just thought they were supplementing it for a later reading, reader, we have no way of knowing. But I don't think we have to assume it was nefarious, necessarily. So I think that's probably the safest way for us to think about this, this longer ending of Mark, is something like an ancient appendix. Now, that brings us to what I think is the most important question. Okay? If what I have said so far this morning is true, that it's not found in our earliest manuscripts and two manuscripts that are very important, and if we should think of it more like an ancient appendix, the question is, given that Christians have for a long time read this text as scripture, how should we approach it? Do you see? I want you to think about this. This is probably the hardest question of all this morning. That is, how should we as Christians approach this text? There are some, a small minority today, who think it's original to Mark, that Mark actually wrote it. I've given you my reasons for thinking that that's wrong. But then there are some people who think it's not written by Mark, but we should still read it as Scripture because Christians have long, long read it as Scripture. And here's the key that we'll talk about here in a minute and that is there's nothing really wrong in this text did you read it what if you read it this morning before you came there's nothing unorthodox about it now some of you are thinking wait a minute i know there are some weird things that happened in certain parts of this country <laughs> that are based on this passage right i was joking with john when i was going to preach today we were going to let the snakes out in the back halfway through my talk right Because we know there are people who handle snakes in their church services, and they base it on this passage, don't they? And you might think, well, that's a problem. That means, but here's the thing. Do you know how many Christians and how long Christians have read this passage as Scripture and never decided, hey, you know what we should do Sunday? Bring some snakes in and let them loose. it. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, for thousand-plus years, Christians have read this passage and nobody thought up the idea to actually pick up snakes in church and see what happens as a sign of your faith, right? Just because some weird group decides to do something weird with the Bible doesn't mean we should cut that part of the Bible out. Are you with me on this? All right, so don't go down that road. I don't think that's a safe road to go down. All this is promising is that after Jesus has ascended to heaven, incredible things will happen to the apostles as proof that their message is true. And have you read the book of Acts? Are you aware of some of the things that happen in the book of Acts? There are some incredible things that happen here. In fact, thinking of snakes, doesn't Paul get bitten by a viper at one point? And doesn't he walk away unharmed? So you might actually say that the things that are described in this passage, the only exception I can think of is the drinking poisons. I don't know anybody in the Bible who drinks poison and is unharmed. But otherwise, everything else here is speaking in tongues, being bitten by a snake. I could take you to other places in Scripture and say that actually happened. Are you with me on this? So I think it's really, really important for us to think this morning, as we, as we bring this to a close, to remind ourselves that even if this is not original, even if we don't preach and teach this as Scripture, which is what I'm going to advocate for, nevertheless, we can realize there is nothing dangerous here. There is nothing unhelpful. There is certainly nothing untrue. In fact, as we'll see, there's many really important truths here that the Scripture teaches elsewhere. Which brings me, then, to the way I think the safest way for us to handle this is as Christians. And that is to go back to the Reformers during the Reformation. As the Reformers thought very carefully and afresh about Scripture and how to treat it, they had a group of books that for a long time in the history of the church had been debated about whether or not they were Scripture or not. And you may know those are called the Apocrypha. You've heard this term? These are the books that are in the Catholic Bible and not in our Protestant Bibles. And you know what the Reformers' view was of the Apocrypha? They did not say, don't ever read those. Those are dangerous. It's not what they said. They said, there's a lot of good stuff in the Apocrypha. There's a lot of stories in the Apocrypha of God's people, the Jews, before Christ, being faithful to him. If you read the book of First or 2 Maccabees, it's a story about how the Jews, under terrible oppression, remained faithful to God, and in some cases gave their lives to do so. It's incredible stories, but what the reformer said is, look, the church has not always accepted these books, and so we should read them for edification, but we should not read them to base our doctrine on. Does that make sense? We have the books that are inspired, and that's where we go for doctrine. And when there's some dispute among Christians about this or that belief, we go to those books to resolve them. So Luther, for example, when it came to the doctrine of purgatory in the Catholic Church, you know how he responded to that? He said, you know what? You could look to some of the Apocrypha and base your doctrine of purgatory on that, but we're not going to base doctrine on that because we're not confident that those books are inspired. Do you you see what I'm saying? So where the Apocrypha aligned well with the rest of Scripture, Luther was happy to read them and happy for other people to read them. And this may surprise you until about the 19th century, All, oh, I shouldn't say all, most Protestant Bibles printed the Apocrypha. They did. It was only in the 19th century that printers started to remove them completely. But I think that's a helpful way, that basic category is a helpful way to think about this longer ending of Mark. Should we treat it the same way we treat the rest of Scripture? No, I don't think so. But where it overlaps and reinforces or illustrates truths found in the rest of Scripture, I think we can read it and not be troubled by it and certainly not be troubled that for centuries Christians have read it as Scripture. Does this make sense? In other words, there's no Christians, again, outside of a small group in Appalachia, who have read this text and been led astray because of it. It is not, in that sense, dangerous. Are you with me? And so now what I'd like to do in these last few moments that we have together is illustrate for you four quick truths that this longer ending of Mark, even though I don't think it's original, nevertheless reminds us of and that are very good things for us to be reminded of are you with me okay so let's look at this very briefly the first one is in verses 9 through 11 this passage reminds us that jesus rose from the dead look at what it says now when he rose early on the first day of the week he appeared first to mary magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons and it goes on now friends why is that worth remembering? Because that is the cornerstone of our faith, that Jesus Christ not only died, but rose from the dead. Isn't that, the cor- isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? If he's not risen from the dead, pff, party up, do what you want. It doesn't matter, right? Someone has wisely said, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, nothing else matters. And if Jesus rose from the dead, nothing else matters. Are you with me? The resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. It is the proof that his death is different than ours. It is proof that God himself vindicated Jesus' claims. Do you remember why Jesus was put to death? He was put to death as an insurrectionist, but as somebody who was blaspheming, speaking falsehoods about God. The resurrection is God's proof positive to us as humans that Jesus is who he said He is. And friends, is that claim not contested in our own day? The same as it was in the first century? Look at this passage. It tells us again and again that witnesses to the resurrection went and told people, and they did not believe. Do you see it in verse 11? But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. And we know that from elsewhere in Scripture. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking to the country. They went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. Do you see? There are still people today, are there not, that hear our testimony about the resurrection and say, ah, I don't believe it. That's not true. But friends, everything about our faith and every truth that elsewhere is presented in Scripture hangs on the fact that Jesus Christ, three days after He was put in a tomb, walked out alive. Amen? Amen? And friends, we need to think a little bit about this because sometimes I talk to people and they think, well, but ancient people were, you know, ancient people. And they didn't have smartphones or modern science or so they just believed things like this, right? Friends, can I tell you that ancient people knew how people died? And they knew what happened to dead people. They didn't live in a world where dead people were just walking around all the time. Are you, are you with me? They knew that dead people had a tendency to stay in the grave. So why did they believe that this one dead person had walked out of the grave? Friends, they believed it because it was true. They believed it because it was true. So this passage reminds us that Jesus rose from the dead. It also reminds us, as I mentioned, that not everyone believes. That not everyone believes. There's a remarkable passage in Luke's gospel, a parable, the parable of, the, of um the rich man and Lazarus, and you may remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is this poor man who's sick, and he's on the doorstep of the rich man. They both die, and they're separated by a great chasm. Abraham is there with, with Lazarus, this poor man. And the rich man says to Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus to my brothers so, that, so they can be warned and not end up here where I am in, in pain and turmoil. And Abraham says words to the rich man that are terrifying. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they do not believe them, they will not believe even if someone were to raise from the dead. Friends, that is an indictment on the condition of the human heart apart from the intervention of God's grace. That apart from the intervention of God's grace, you too would be incredulous at the incredible claim that someone rose from the dead. Are you with me? What an incredible claim. People do not believe that. The third thing that this passage reminds us of is that salvation comes by faith and was confirmed by miraculous signs. Verses 16 and 17. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now, we know you don't, that, that baptism does not save you because in the second line there, even there, this is not a place where this passage is theologically problematic. If you read it closely, it's whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but we know that what really saves is faith because the very next line says, whoever does not believe. It doesn't say, but whoever does not believe and is not baptized. Do you see that? So, the real focus here is on faith, which should then lead to baptism as a sign of faith. But this passage reminds us that salvation comes by faith salvation comes by faith, doesn't it? It is our trust, our full confidence in Christ and what He's done for us that saves us. It's not anything that we do, is it? It's not anything that we do. I know some Christians, and I I was a Christian like this myself, who think, yes, I know that faith saves me, but I think I need to help Jesus out just a little bit, right? Not like a lot, like He did the heavy lifting of salvation, on the cross, but I need to help Him out. Friends, how many of you know Jesus does not need your help? We do not live obedient lives to help Jesus save us. What an affront to the work of Christ on our behalf to think that way. No, we live lives of obedience out of gratitude, for the gift that is received only by faith. The last thing that this passage teaches, and this is where I'll close this morning, is that Jesus sits at God's right hand as king. Look at verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Friends, we proclaim the message because Jesus died, because he rose, and he ascended now to be honest a lot of times we as evangelicals do not think about that third one a lot we tend to focus a lot on the first one and then sometimes on the second one but we very rarely think about the importance of the ascension to the saving work of christ so just for a brief minute here i want you to think about how important that is okay and i want you to think about it by thinking about the other resurrections in the scriptures yes think about lazarus in John's gospel, I, I call him, I think of it as poor Lazarus, because you know what happened to poor Lazarus? The guy dies, okay, gets brought back to life after a couple days, so he stinks awfully. I and mean, that's what the text says, he stinks. And then, and this is not recorded, and this is why we don't think about it a lot, but have but you ever thought about what had to happen to Lazarus? Is, is Lazarus still walking around here anywhere? No, where, where is he? He had to die. Have you ever thought about Lazarus? The, the poor guy had to die twice. Most of us only have to do it once, but this poor guy has to do it twice, right? And that's true of every resurrection in the the Bible. Every person in the Bible who is resurrected dies again. There's only one. There's only one resurrection in the entire Bible where he's risen and never dies again. And that is Jesus Christ. Because 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sits at God's right hand. Do you know why Jesus is able to give you eternal life? Why he's able to offer that to you? It's not just because he died. Because friends, let me tell you, if all he had died, he's just another Jewish first century, uh, another first century dead Jew. And there are lots of those, and you've never heard their names. Right? The only reason you've heard of his name is because he walked out of the grave and never went back in. (laughs) Jesus died, rose, and ascended, and he sat down at God's right hand, because God gave him all authority on heaven and on earth. So the last thing I want to say this morning is to those of you who are believers, these are the great truths of your faith. Whatever else I have said this morning that's raised questions for you, you need to know this, that the things that are presented in this longer ending of Mark, they are true. Because we can look to other places in Scripture. Scripture. That reinforce them that's that's to that teach us about them yes and these are the great truths of your face faith lean on them treasure them share them if you are here this morning and you're not a believer the message to you is that these these great truths could be yours as well because Jesus died he rose and he ascended at God's right hand and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, you have two ways to meet him. You can meet him as the judge when he comes back with all that same authority to judge those who have rejected him. Or you could meet him now as the greatest friend you'll ever know. Friend, if that's you this morning and you have not yet committed your life to Christ, today is the day. You come talk to me or you come talk to John or one of the other staff members here. You don't go another day without turning your life over to Jesus, the King. Would you pray with me as we close? Our Father in heaven, we are so so grateful for your word that in so many ways is so remarkably copied for us and preserved and translated We are the beneficiaries of hundreds and even thousands of years of faithful followers, faithful Christians who have copied these texts for us and preserved them so that we can translate them and study them, read them, sing them, preach from them. Oh, Lord, what a tremendous, tremendous resource, what a tremendous benefit to us. Help us to treasure these words that we have in the scriptures. Father, for those who are here this morning and there for the first time contemplating a life apart from Jesus Christ, would today be the day of salvation for them. We pray only in Christ's name, the one who died, rose, and is even now at your right hand. Amen.